Thank you, Andrew. Um, this talk is really going to be about halfway between a memoir and a treatise. Most of my working life was spent at the triple frontier between the judiciary, the executive, and parliament. And I'm going to try and tell you something about this career, relating it as well as I can to the wider theme of government and the rule of law. I dedicate it to, in passing to, the, as a homage to the seven Lord Chancellors to whom I had the honour to serve over the years. I joined the old Lord Chancellor's Department in September 1962 at the age of 27 after military service and university and a couple of years at the bar. My main motives were a wish to work on law reform and on joining Europe. But soon after I joined, General de Gaulle vetoed our application to join the <laughs> common market, so that work had to wait for another 10 years. I served in the LCD for 36 years, including nine as permanent secretary, until 1998, when I retired from the civil service. The whole period was one of increasing legalization, for good or bad, of government, and increasing growth in the size and responsibilities of our department. <coughs> After that, I served another 14 years until around 2012, doing various inquiries, commissions, boards, etc., making a total of 50 years in the public service. During that time, government and the judiciary have changed in many ways, though underlying foundations have remained. Turning to my wider theme, my executive summary goes something like this. Over all this last half century, the judiciary have made new inroads into the world of government. This is entirely beneficial, provided the judges handle it carefully. We have a top-class judiciary who are a major national asset. But the more the judges develop public law, the more visible and controversial, and therefore vulnerable, they become. At the same time, the political class and the legal class have moved even further apart. To help protect the senior judges against the political storms which sooner or later may blow even harder, I believe their appointment should involve other branches of government so that they will share responsibility for the judicial branch. For its part, and to improve its link with the judiciary and to ensure proper support for the administration of justice, the government should cut back the functions of the Ministry of Justice to the essential core returning penal matters to the Home Office. The Lord Chancellor should normally be a senior <coughs> lawyer, and she or he should be recognised and tasked not just with the independence of the judiciary, but with the rule of law within government. Now back to the beginning. <laughs> the Lord Chancellor's department that I joined in September 1962, nearly 55 years ago, was a now remote world as Hartley said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. The office, we called it an office then, consisted of 12 white male barristers, all dressed in black jackets, striped trousers, <laughs> and stiff white collars. With a small supporting staff, we were all housed in the House of Lords near the Lord Chancellor. Most days, we all had lunch together in the Lord's dining room, and every Monday, we met, all met around the same table in the Permanent Secretary's room, which many years later became my room. We were a close and friendly group, really only an extended private office, not a true ministry. 
like medieval serfs, we junior members often didn't know today what tomorrow's work would be, but that could be fun. At this time, and for many years afterwards, the Lord Chancellor still had a threefold job. He was Speaker of the House of Lords, Head of the Judiciary, and a very senior Cabinet Minister. He was always a senior barrister or judge, fully part of the legal culture, and expected to represent it at the highest levels of government. He still sat regularly judicially, though not all the time. I arrived soon after Macmillan's Night of the Long Knives, when Lord Chancellor Kilmuir had been replaced overnight by Lord Dillon, previously Attorney General and popularly known as Sir Reginald Bullying Manor. In the culture of government at this period, there was on the one hand a lot more overlap of legal and political personnel than nowadays. It was more normal than now for many members of Parliament to carry on other jobs and professions. The House of Commons still contained many senior practising barristers, so there was no shortage of heavyweight candidates for the posts of Law Officer and Lord Chancellor. On the other hand, the role of the judiciary in government was minimal. The judges were respected, but not seen as having much immediate relevance. Our small office was seen as peripheral, a little outhouse to the great mansion of the executive government. Our own working links were much more with the judges and legal offices than with other government departments, with one notable exception, the Home Office, which loomed alongside our little frigate like a towering man-of-war. <laughs> with them, we always had close linkages and occasional turf disputes. And in passing, I pay my tribute to the Home Office, as I knew it throughout my career, a truly great Department of State. Our own working links were much more with the judges, as I say, and we felt um, really that we were working for them, which we were, in a sense, because the Lord Chancellor was head of the judiciary. The wider culture of that time is often described as deferential, and maybe it was. But more important, I see now more clearly that both society and government were still semi-militarised. I and virtually everybody else in our office had served in the armed forces, many in the war, and in this we only mirrored society as a whole. In our little office, like the officer's mess of a good regiment, it also went with a good deal of informality and debate on equal terms. But however unconsciously compared to today, the military values of hierarchy, duty and discipline still permeated. The British system of government always includes a strong executive, but it was especially powerful at that time. Parliamentary discipline was normally very strong and the courts had little role. The government could and did pretty much what it wanted and it relied on civil service advice for most of what it did. The only restraints were party politics and the media, but the intrusion of party politics into government was much more limited than now and the media were usually a lot more respectful. At the time I arrived, the LCD was a bit stranded on the beach of time. This was ironical, in light of Gladstone's hopes when he established the post of Lord Chancellor's Permanent Secretary in 1880. He foresaw an active reforming Ministry of Justice. 
but the age of the mighty Victorian reformers had petered out by the early 20th century. And by 1962, although very busy, the LCD had an air of ossified tradition and limited horizons. However, massive change was about to come, and I was lucky that it came in my time. As the 1960s wore on, our whole society was to change. So too was the role of the judiciary, with the beginnings of judicial review, which steadily took the judges further into the realm of government than had been known before. The general election of October 1964 brought in a new Labour government, and with it, Lord Gerald Gardner as Lord Chancellor. He had been one of the kings of the bar, starring inter alia in the Lady Chatterley case. He was not a politician, but he was a strong reformer. I served as his private secretary for four years, and among his achievements were the abolition of capital punishment, its creation of the Law Commission, and the ending of the rule that the House of Lords was bound by its own decisions. In 1966, Gerald had held a competition within the office for the best idea for the next major law reform. My senior colleague and great friend Derek Elton and I won joint first prize and bottles of champagne. He for proposing a reorganisation of the courts, I for proposing a Ministry of Justice. <laughs> My own idea had to wait over 40 years, but Derek's was put into effect very soon. Gerald set up a royal commission on the courts, which led to the Courts Act 1972. This abolished the old assizes and quarter sessions and set up the Crown Courts in their place. It put the Lord Chancellor in charge of all the courts in England and Wales, except for the magistrates' courts and certain tribunals, which had to wait until later. The 1972 Act also established the centralised court service across the country, also under the LCD. So overnight we became a true ministry, with around 25,000 people at the time I retired. The old clubbable little office faded, and a new organisation emerged, with other buildings outside the House of Lords, and thus more like other Whitehall departments. My own spell in private office ended in 1968. A couple of years later, at last I got my joining wish, and was posted to our tiny European and international section. I was just in time to work at a very junior level on the, on the negotiations for our entry to the common market, as we called it then, and especially on the bill team for the European Communities Act 1972. This, too, was an exceptionally interesting piece of work, which will now presumably be undone by the government's proposed Great Repeal Bill. Back in the 1970s, I greatly enjoyed my frequent visits to Brussels and other ministries of justice across Europe. We had many tasks, among which was the complex negotiations for British adherence to the EU Convention on Jurisdiction and the Enforcement of Civil Judgments, which I very much hope is part of the acquis which will survive for us. It was always very congenial for me to work with colleagues from other legal traditions. Then I had some years on legal aid and then some more on courts administration and in 1981, at the age of 46, I was promoted to what is now called Director General and handed responsibility for the appointment of judges and QCs. <coughs> this was a world of its own with some wider implications to which I'll return a bit later. 
Eight years after that, I was promoted to permanent secretary, where in a sense you have to be concerned with everything in the department, and that by now was a wider span. Though in those days, the key task was still close involvement in the personal relationship of the Lord Chancellor with the senior judges. On the wider stage, during these years and since, how has fared the rule of law? This needs a look at the development, first of the judiciary, and then of the government and parliament. Overall, there was useful progress, but also a rising stress level. The main change for the judges was the growth of public law, and especially of judicial review. But there were two other factors, both connected with Europe. One was the common market, and the, on which the 1972 Act was a game changer. It went a long, though not the whole way, towards giving the courts power to declare an Act of Parliament unconstitutional, as was later confirmed in the Factotame litigation. The Great Repeal Bill will now presumably remove that, but in its time it created an era of greater judicial power. The other factor was human rights. The Hu European Convention of 1951 was largely a British-inspired attempt to prevent any resurgence of dictatorial regimes in Europe. The EU allowed the right of personal application, I'm sorry, the UK allowed the right of personal application and accepted the jurisdiction of the Strasbourg Court from 1966. It's perhaps ironical that the French delayed their acceptance of the right of personal application many years beyond that because they suspected the, the convention of being far too Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> But the, the Strasbourg court took on a life and made an empire of its own. And the later addition of judges from Eastern European countries brought different cultures into the mix. As you will know, the decisions of the Strasbourg court and of our own courts under the convention made widening impacts in the politically sensitive areas of immigration and terrorism. These created new tensions and led in turn to hitherto unheard of public recrimination by ministers against judges. Through this route also, the British judges had an increasing impact on the processes of government. And the Human Rights Act 1998 later furthered this by giving the judges powers that they had not had before. It looks as if that act and our membership of the convention will probably still stand after Brexit, but we shall see. During those years, while the judges' work took them further into government, a paradoxical evolution simultaneously took their own culture further away from that very field. In former times, as I mentioned, and especially before the Second World War, there had always been plenty of barristers in Parliament, and it was also common practice for some of the judges to be appointed from among their ranks. Indeed, Lord Salisbury, one of our most intellectual prime ministers, proclaimed at the dawn of the 20th century that it was part of the British Constitution that, quote, party claims should always weigh very heavily in the disposal of the highest legal appointments. And he added privately to his daughter Gwendolyn that, after all, quote, within certain limits, one man would make as good a judge as another. And a Tory mentality was ipso facto more trustworthy than a liberal one. <laughs> Certainly the senior levels of the judiciary before the Second World War included a good slice of judges who had served as MPs and even ministers. 
And even after that, it was generally understood that the serving Attorney General had at least a claim to the post of Lord Chief Justice. Barrister MPs were understood to have virtually a right to silk on demand. All this was already changing when I joined the LCD in 1962. In that very year, Sir John Simon, the Solicitor General's appointment as a High Court judge, and soon as President of the Family Division, as we didn't call it then, was among the last politicians to come over to the bench. Sir Ross Cranston, who retired this March, was a rare and outstanding contemporary exception. Successive Lord Chancellors, after that, supervised a progressive divorce between politics and the judiciary. Barrister MPs were no longer given silk on demand. In a small way, I helped in this process. But a deeper cause was that it was becoming, and has become, progressively more difficult to combine a career as a barrister with membership of the House of Commons. Both jobs became more and more demanding of time. George Osborne's recent attempt at multitasking <laughs> might lead to further restrictions on MPs in this regard, though I hope it won't. The political class has accordingly come to include fewer senior lawyers, thus reducing the pool of political candidates for judicial office and for the posts of law officers and the Lord Chancellorship. It is no personal criticism of the present Attorney General to mention that I understand that he had only seven years' experience of mainly criminal practice on the Midland circuit and had to be given silk on his appointment as Attorney General. That would not have happened in former times. <coughs> Thus, the legal and political worlds have drifted further apart, just in a period when the judiciary has impinged more and more on the governmental. It seemed right at the time for us to wring the politics out of the judiciary, but we now have a judiciary with greater power over public administration, but with less personal experience of it, and a government with less heavyweight legal knowledge. In the judiciary, the main remaining thread of governmental experience, narrow but important, has been the influential role of former Treasury juniors, most of them coming on the senior bench, because they have experience of government by representing it, but they are necessarily few. We get great advantages in drawing our judges from a separate professional culture and not from an official class, and I would not want to see that change. But it would be better if some of them had more background knowledge of government. I know that the present and previous Lord Chief Justices have made commendable efforts to f foster internal and informal links, and I hope that will continue. However, comparisons with, for example, the Conseil d'État and the US Supreme Court remain slightly discouraging in this respect. Both of those courts, in very different ways, embody rather more of such knowledge and experience than ours. An additional tendency, which has caused friction over the years, has been the government's use, I rather think overuse, of senior judges to conduct public inquiries. It's been my task on many occasions to invite judges to take on such commissions, and their sense of duty was such that they virtually never refused. I don't say that we should never have judge-led inquiries, but I do think that they carry risks to the position and reputation of the judiciary which are not fully recognised. Other common law countries are far more sparing, I think wisely. 
Fortunately, there are some signs that this lesson has been learned. The present Lord Chief Justice has taken a firmer line, which I respectfully very much approve, and I hope this trend continues. Lastly on the judges, and since my own time, has been the establishment of the Supreme Court. This at last carried out the intentions of the great Victorian reformers, Gladstone again. When they set up the Supreme Court of Judicature in 1872-75, they intended it to take over the final appellate role of the House of Lords. But Disraeli came to power at the wrong time and frustrated this part of the plan. The result was the compromise of the Appellate Jurisdiction Act 1876, under which we lived until 2009. I had long hoped that we would get a proper Supreme Court, and I regard it as a thoroughly good development. It has brought the flagship of the legal system out more into the light of day. That has brought some risks of its own, but overall it is surely a good thing. Meanwhile, the culture of government has been increasingly influenced by the growth of judicial power. Ministers and civil servants have become aware that they must keep an eye out for legal implications both in policy and process. At the same time, the size and role of the Lord Chancellor's Department grew and grew. The Lord Chancellor's threefold role and his place in the House of Lords began to become an issue. So it stood when I left in 1998. Five years later, Tony Blair's coup removed Lord Irvine and ended the centuries-old post of Lord Chancellor as we had known it. We still have a Lord Chancellor to hold the Great Seal, but the post is now little more than a formal adjunct to the Office of Secretary of State for Justice. In the result, by the way, she is remarkably similar to her French counterpart, who since 1791 is Ministre de la Justice et Garde des Sceaux. The House of Lords was given a new specialised Lord Speaker, who incidentally occupies my old room, and the Lord <laughs> Chief Justice became the head of the judiciary. The short-lived Department of Constitutional Affairs was replaced in 2007 by the Ministry of Justice, and so at last my champagne-winning mm -hmm. project of 1966 was realised. However, in some respects, I think these changes went too far. I have three particular concerns about them. The first is the responsibilities of the new ministry. I welcome the centralisation of justice and constitutional responsibilities, but I think it was a mistake to include with them the prison and probation services. This seems to me inappropriate, both in principle and practice. In principle, because these penal functions are core to the executive, and like the police, are unconnected in a liberal democracy with the judicial branch of government. They should not be brigaded with the courts and the judiciary. They are properly within the scope of the Ministry of the Interior, which with us is the Home Office. And it is inappropriate in practice, because prisons are highly sensitive politically. They therefore drain the attention of justice ministers away from what I think should be their central concern, which is the judiciary and the courts, the law and connected constitutional matters. It's largely because of this, as I think mistaken arrangement, that the office of 12 lawyers, which I joined all those years ago, is now a ministry of, I believe, nearly 80,000. That seems rather too many. The ministry's <coughs> currently stated priorities are, in this order, to reduce reoffending and protect the public, 
to provide access to justice, to increase confidence in the justice system, and to uphold people's civil liberties. Nothing wrong with any of those by themselves, but they say nothing, directly anyway, about the quality of justice or the rule of law, and they seem to rank the reduction of reoffending above the judicial branch of government. My second concern is the qualifications of the Lord Chancellor. With such responsibilities and such a large department, it's inevitable that she or he should be a member of the House of Commons. And in Elizabeth Truss, we welcome the first female Lord Chancellor for many centuries. It's less welcome that, like her predecessors Chris Grayling and Michael Gove, she is not a lawyer, another first since the 16th century. This is partly offset, at least for the moment, by the fact that her present Lord Permanent Secretary is a lawyer. However, it gives me some foreboding. The present arrangement is already leading to some worrying results. As you will know, the first instance judges in the recent Brexit case were virulently abused by certain newspapers. In words disturbingly reminiscent of those used by the Nazi party in the 1930s, the judges were described as enemies of the people. This clearly invoked the Lord Chancellor's duty to defend the independence of the judiciary. I'm afraid I share the view that her response was pretty disappointing, to say the least, and appeared to see the freedom of the press as licensing not just criticism but abuse of the judiciary. It doesn't. So it was hardly surprising that the Lord Chief Justice openly criticised her on this ground in his evidence on March 22nd to the House of Lords Constitutional Committee. Of course, the present Lord Chancellor may well do a better job on any future occasion, and I hope she will. However, it does seem likely that a Lord Chancellor who was a senior lawyer would have put up a stronger performance. This is relevant to another gap which the new arrangements may have opened up. <coughs> who is to be guardian of the rule of law within government? The old Lord Chancellor was broadly understood to have this role and did on occasion perform it, though it's important not to exaggerate the frequency or depth of such occasions. But when he did perform that role, his high legal standing and seniority in Cabinet gave him considerable power. It's not so easy for an ordinary Cabinet member who is not even a lawyer to play such a part. And it's therefore not surprising that Lord Chancellor Grayling testified to the House of Lords Constitution Committee a couple of years ago <coughs> that, in effect, he didn't see it as part of his job. <coughs> the committee disagreed and recommended that the Lord Chancellor should be recognised as the guardian of the rule of law, but my understanding is that the government has not yet accepted this recommendation. The resulting position seems unsatisfactory. Of course, in a wider sense, the, the true and proper guardians of the rule of law are the courts. But it would be reassuring if it were clear that we did have such a guardian within the government. At present, it doesn't look as though we have. The Attorney General isn't really in a position to perform this role, at least on his own. Again, there is no guarantee that a Lord Chancellor who is a senior lawyer would perform this role better than a layman. But again, it seems more likely. If we return prisons and probation to the Home Office, where I believe they belong anyway, 
it would, I submit, be feasible to return the Lord Chancellor to the House of Lords, with, of course, a Minister of State in the Commons. This would make it much easier to recruit, again, senior lawyers to the Lord Chancellorship of the high calibre of Lord Gardiner, Lord Mackay or Lord Irvine. My own belief is that this would improve the quality of government. Until such changes are made, I hope that Prime Ministers will at least do their best to appoint qualified lawyers. Although their ranks are thinner, there remains a pool of possible candidates. And if that pool might be enlarged, if it were demonstrated that lawyers could at least hope for high office. My third concern is about the appointment of judges. This function has now been hived off to the Independent Judicial Appointments Commission, now chaired by Lord Kakar, an eminent professor of surgery. The commission recently celebrated its 10th birthday, and as far as I can see, it's done a good job. It was thought desirable to have an independent commission to avoid any hint of political involvement in judicial appointments. I can testify that in my time anyway, we had already eradicated all taint of any party political element. Lord Chancellors, of course, consulted the senior judges extensively and occasionally the law officers, but never any other politicians, ministers or otherwise. I recall that a Home Secretary once volunteered his view on who should be the next Lord Chief Justice and was politely but firmly told to get lost. I would not seek to put the clock back and I support the work of the Appointments Commission. But what I would like to see the Commission do is go back to consulting about the actual work of the individual candidates. I used to spend a lot of my own time doing this, as do many Appointments Commissions in the common law world. However, our own Commission has turned its face against what are pejoratively called secret soundings on grounds which I respectfully believe amount to political correctness. This is a pity, because such consultations are really the only effective way to discover true qualifications for an office from which, once appointed, it is extremely difficult to remove the appointee. There isn't much room for mistakes, and interviews and references alone are notoriously fallible. I further believe that for very senior judicial appointments, we ought to restore a greater political component. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word political as, quote, of or relating to the government or public affairs of the country. In this sense, much of the work of the judges is now inescapably political, and their appointment is also inescapably a political act. In my view, it is important for their independence that the judges should have as much political legitimacy as possible. Government and Parliament would be more likely to support the judiciary and less likely to undermine them if they bore a measure of responsibility for the appointment of its leading members. To this end, I believe that at least for the High Court and above, the Lord Chancellor, lawyer or not, should play a real and not just a formal part in appointments choosing from a short list and meeting the candidates. In doing so, she should be advised by a senior member of her staff whose business it is to know the field of candidates. For the highest appointments, that is the Supreme Court, the Lord Chief Justice and perhaps the Master of the Rolls, I believe we should go consider going further and requiring recommended candidates to be interviewed in public 
and approved or not by a joint committee of both Houses of Parliament. I would attach importance to it being a joint committee, half from the Lords and half from the Commons. <clears throat> I'm well aware that this approach is unfashionable with both the judicial and the political classes. But conversations long ago with judges of the US Supreme Court convinced me of the value of the approval of senior judges by the legislative branch. I know all the problems and risks and arguments the other way, including the recent travails of Mr. now Justice Neil Gorsuch. However, I believe they are outweighed by the added legitimacy and strength of tenure and therefore independence of judges so appointed in an age when they are increasingly visible and vulnerable. Of course I don't pretend that these measures would solve every problem. But given the overriding need, as I see it, to protect the judiciary and my belief that such measures would help towards that end, I believe they'd be a clear step in the right direction. This brings me finally to the independence of the judiciary. Throughout my official career, I regarded protecting this independence as my cardinal duty, and more importantly, so did the Lord Chancellors whom I served. I hope that present and future Lord Chancellors and other ministers too will do the same, although I am concerned about the Brexit case incident that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> Luckily for our country, Judicial independence is well established by an array of legal, cultural and conventional defences, but it is not absolutely guaranteed, and it rests on politi political pillars which are more slender than I think is generally recognised. We have no codified constitution. Power is centralised in Parliament, especially the House of Commons, which is normally ruled by the government. The collective attitude of the House of Commons and the government towards the judiciary is therefore important. Although I had worked in the Palace of Westminster for most of my career and been an officer of both houses, I hadn't really had all that much to do with the House of Commons until about around 2000 when I went on its audit committee, later chaired for part of the time by Theresa May and then did an inquiry in 2009-10 into the use of expenses by MPs. From these experiences, and from one or two brushes in previous years, I learned that the culture of the House of Commons, though normally respectful, is not steadfastly supportive of the judicial branch of government. They sense in the judges, as they do in the House of Lords, a potential rival for power. The House of Commons is a jealous god, and I don't regard it, at all times and for all purposes, as a completely reliable bulwark of judicial independence. The same is true for the executive, and with brass knobs on. I don't at all impugn ministers' motives, but the pressures on them are very great, not least from the media. The more the judges come into what ministers see as their territory, as again we saw the other day in the Brexit case, the greater the potential danger to judicial independence. That is why I would like to see all available reinforces to that independence built up and fortified. I've already mentioned my belief that one way of doing this would be as far as possible to reserve the post of Lord Chancellor to senior lawyers and to increase the political component in the appointment of senior judges. 
This last would help to bind both Parliament and ministers into supporting judicial independence. As a member of the Constitution Society, I can't resist adding that a further defence that we could build would be a codified constitution, which would define and entrench the role and protection of the judges. But that is another and even greater matter for another day. How far we go down these roads will depend, among many other things, on the political results of our withdrawal from the EU, on their effects on the structure and constitution of the United Kingdom, and on the twists and turns and accidents of politics and government in the years to come. That will be for others to carry forward. However, while the past may be a foreign country, as William Faulkner also said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. So I hope my own experiences may be a modest help for the future. Thank you.